be uh, my privilege to introduce the brother Bob for the Gideons. So Aaron said that he hears John MacArthur is going to be at your meeting. Yes. He's excited about that. He said you'll probably see some Campbell students there. See some the oh, Campbell's. From the schools of vanity, they're going out there. Okay, good. That shows Campbell's a pretty decent college. Yeah, that's right. Just to come out there and see you. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the Lord has blessed us beyond, I think, any kind of calculation in the fact that he's given us his word, his communication. And uh, I think it's the, really the most valuable thing we possess. And we're very delighted to be associated with Gideon's and their distribution of it. You come on up, Bob, and just take the time you need to share. Thank you. I brought some seeds to show you this morning. I, uh, you've all seen seeds like these, exactly like these. Uh, anybody recognize what kind they are? Absolutely right. Not one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, next time you, you uh, eat an apple, try counting the number of seeds that you find in the, in the core. You don't often do that because you put the core away, but uh, try counting the seeds. You'll probably find about uh, four or five maybe two or three, but the point is that, that you can easily count them. Now suppose that you and I took just one of these seeds and we went out back and, uh, and planted it. And suppose someone else came along and uh, watered that seed and then suppose uh, some other people came along and looked after it uh, because eventually a, a plant would sprout from that seed and, and it would require some care. I'm told that in about eight or 10 years, we would have a tree and that tree would eventually, if it was looked after, uh, it was nourished, it would flower and it would produce apples. How many apples could we eventually pick from that tree? And what do you say? Exactly, yeah. That's really amazing. You can count the seeds in one apple but you cannot count the apples in one seed. Now, the work of the Gideons is to sow a different kind of seed. It's the seed of God's word. And for over 100 years, supported by congregations just like yours, Gideons have distributed God's word to bring men, women, and children to Jesus Christ. Others come along to water and nurture 
out of those seeds. And when they produce a harvest of fruitful lives, it is God who receives glory. Whenever Gideon uh, distributed boxes of Bibles to a hotel or a prison or a school or a college, we always count the Bibles in those boxes, but we cannot number the lives that those Bibles will impact. What we do know is that God will accomplish his purpose with those Bibles, and he tells us that in Isaiah 55, verse 11. So shall my word be that goeth forth of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Let's hear how God used one New Testament uh, to change the life of a college student uh, named David Doyle. First of all, I would like to uh, thank the Gideons for giving me an opportunity to testify of the grace of God in my life. As was said, uh, my name is David Doyle. I was raised in a non-Christian family. My father was an atheist and my mother was a Buddhist. My father's um, Irish-German man from Iowa was a Green Beret during the Vietnam War. And he met my mom there. He met and married my mom there. Uh, we came to the States in 1975 when I was about four and a half years old. My father taught that when you die, you become food for worms, and that's it. Family was the most important thing to live for. You were to protect and to provide. My mother, on the other hand, would offer up incense and a bowl of fruit to her ancestors once a year. And when we came to the States, I went to church from the ages of six to nine with my great aunt who went to a Bible church. I distinctly remember learning the Ten Commandments, the love of God and sending his son Jesus Christ, and the loving actions displayed by the members of that church. However, I was not born again at that time. As a child, I prayed that my mom and dad would stop fighting about money, about my dad's drinking, about his cars. Their fighting did not stop. God did not answer my prayer as a child, so I stopped believing in God, and I stopped going to church. And like most boys, I wanted to be like my father. I was an atheist in my teenage years. I had no regard for God, and I had no regard for spiritual things. I was antagonistic toward Christianity. After graduating from high school, I decided to take the summer off to find myself. Wow. And uh, then I would decide, you know, after I find myself, then I'll know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life and choose a career or a major in college. So I determined that I would be a business major, go after the money, as most people do. I determined then to study. But after that first semester of college, the pursuit of a business degree did no longer satisfy. The pursuit of that, that, that money, that dollar, didn't satisfy. I knew of uh, rock stars committing suicide or overdosing. And they had fame, they had money, they had it all, but chose to end their lives. So after that first semester of college, I wanted to spend time to think about who was right. Was my dad, the atheist, right? Was my mom, the Buddhist, right? 
was my great aunt, the Christian, right? So I studied that second half of my freshman year with the goal of studying religion, world religions, psychology, human nature, philosophy, history, search for the meaning of life. So by observation of the world, I came to the conclusion that there has to be something out there. I am from the Midwest, and you know, when I would look around at nature, when I would look at the Great Lakes and the sky and the stars, I concluded that there has to be something or someone greater than me out there. As the philosophy class is taught, there has to be a prime mover, a first cause. Eventually, I came to the understanding, the truth, that behind every painting there is a painter. Behind every building, there is a builder. And according to Hebrews 3, verse 4, every house is built by some man, but he who built all things is God. So I knew that there was something out there, something bigger than me. So I became an agnostic in my early college days. You know, I thought there may be a creator God, but you can't know him. If there was a God, then which God should I believe in? I was searching for truth and the meaning of life. I was trying to find that thing that would fill that emptiness and that lack of meaning. I tried to fill that with sports, with relationships, with the pursuit of education and money. I changed my major from business to social work so that I could help those who were suffering. One of my biggest hang-ups with the God of the Bible and with Christianity was the problem of suffering and evil. At the time, pop culture was concerned about the starvation that was happening in Africa. They went on a Feed the World campaign. I could not believe in a God that was supposed to be good and yet still let innocent children die of starvation. If he was all-powerful, why didn't he provide for them? If he was good and if he was loving, why didn't he stop it? Therefore, in my mind, God was not loving or, or all-powerful. However, some Christians from college campus ministries like uh, InterVarsity and Campus Crusade, they gave me literature, they talked to me, they reasoned with me that God has given enough food in this world to feed them ten times over, only that men would not share. I threw away food all the time. I ate more than I needed. My refrigerator was full. My pantry was full. And so that answer made sense to me. But still, my other hang-up was, why does God let children get abused in all types of ways? Why didn't he stop it if you were a loving and a powerful God? Some believers explained to me that it wasn't God that hurt or abused those children. It was men. So you cannot point your finger at God for what men have done. Men have the freedom to choose. And that made sense to me. The crutches that I leaned on to not believe the God of the Bible were being kicked out from under me. Though these explanations that were given to me were intellectually satisfying, I was still angry at God for not stopping the abuse and suffering. I still believe that I could live a good life without God. I determined to live a good life by going into social work, into counseling, in my pride. I wanted to fix what God allowed to be broken. 
Like my father, I was a good student, self-sufficient, proud. I did not need God. I paid my own way through college, got good grades, and I cared and had compassion for the suffering. I was, in my own eyes, a good person. I knew I was taught the Ten Commandments, but I continually broke them. Though I was better than my peers, I still lied, I still stole, I still cheated. I was a designated driver when our gang, our crowd, our crew went partying. But I was trying to live a good life without God. I was trying to live a good life apart from our Creator because I didn't want to believe in God at that time because of evil and suffering. But trying to live a good life, I could not do it. I still stole, I still cheated, I still committed immorality. Eventually, I was tired of trying to find meaning. I was tired of trying to live a good life apart from God. Nothing could satisfy the emptiness of my life, not the things of this world and not even my own self-righteousness. It was then as a senior at Northern Illinois University during my senior year, someone gave me a small green Bible with a Gideon's emblem on the cover. I read that continually until January 3rd, 1993. I keep that Bible next to my bedstand. That night, January 3rd, That night, January 3rd, 1993, I trusted Jesus that night. I signed the back of that Bible. David C. Doyle, 1-3-93. That night I read Matthew 11:28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So I left my old way of thinking. I repented. I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I confessed that I was a sinner. I confessed to God that I had stiff-armed him my whole life. And I put my trust in him. That night after that prayer, I asked God for three things. Number one, to give me a job immediately after graduation. Why? So that I wouldn't hang around with my old unsafe buddies and do wicked things. I asked God for new Christian friends that night. Why? So I wouldn't hang around with my old buddies and do wicked things. <laughs> and then I also asked for a good church. Then the first week of graduation, I got a job as a psychiatric technician. The first person that I met in the workroom meeting place was a Christian. God answered two of those prayers within one week of graduating college. I visited several churches, but I didn't join any. I followed these new Christian friends that God gave me, and, I, and one day they followed a, a bus. I was on a bus route, and they followed from Elgin to Schaumburg, Illinois, to Bethel Baptist Church. On August 14, 1994, I was baptized. I became a member of Bethel Baptist Church in Schaumburg, Illinois. I was pursuing a graduate studies to become a marriage and family therapist at Northern Illinois University, but I felt God calling me into ministry full-time Christian ministry. 
what I learned from the grad classes did not match up with, with what I was learning from the Bible. So I ended that pursuit, and I surrendered to God for full-time Christian ministry. I knew that I could help an alcoholic to get sober with behavior modification. I knew that I could help restore a marriage with improved communication skills. However, in the end, that would not cure the problem of the human condition of sinfulness and meaninglessness. The cure was, that kind of a cure was like putting a band-aid over cancer. It covers sickness temporarily, but it does not get to the heart of the problem. I could help people improve their lives, but they would still die and go to hell. The cure to the human condition of sin and meaninglessness could only be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, I have seen alcoholics restored. I have seen marriages restored by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I became a physician of the soul as a pastor in 1999. I've since preached the gospel to thousands of people. I've discipled and baptized dozens of others. I've had the privilege of baptizing four of my five children. The youngest trusted Jesus as her savior about two and a half, three years ago. And one day she'll get baptized. We're, we're tentatively planning on baptizing her in the Gulf Coast instead of in the baptismal pool. But I'm currently the senior pastor of Maria Baptist Church in Palm Harbor, Florida. And the Christian life is a great adventure. I'm indebted to God through you for the Gideon's ministry. I am thankful for the Gideon's. And I want to encourage you to press on and keep sowing the seed of the word of God. May God richly bless you. Sowing the seed of the Word of God. That's what the Gideons International is all about. Last year, uh, in spite of the pandemic, Gideons distributed 29 million scriptures in 200 countries <clears throat> in 109 languages. One of those languages for quite some time, for many, many years, has been the Japanese language. And this is a, a, a testament distributed by the Gideons in Japan. Uh, it's in both English and, uh, and Japanese. It was given to me by a uh, retired missionary to, to Japan who um, is very, very grateful to the Gideon's ministry in, in, uh, in that part of the world. The newest translation uh, that is distributed by the Gideons is the Brew language translation. Brew is spelled B-R-U. I had to look up where the Brew people live. They live in the country of India, near the border uh, with Bangladesh. And if you know your, your geography, that's up at the kind of the far northern end of the, the Bay of Bengal. Most of the Bru people follow the Hindu religion, which means that they believe in multiple gods and worship uh, ancestors and spirits. This new translation will help those people understand that there is only one true God who deserves their worship. There are 600,000 people in the Brew tribe. 
Now, put, to put that into perspective, um, the entire uh, country of, of India has a lot more people, over 1 billion people. And last year, throughout the country of India, Gideons distributed 15 million scriptures in 25 different languages. Closer to home, uh, Gideons and Auxiliary in New York City were faced about with a decision about their annual metropolitan uh, scripture distribution, which is for years and years has been a major uh, event. And Gideons and Auxiliary come in from other states, uh, including North Carolina, uh, to participate in that, uh, that distribution. But because of COVID-19, things were different. They decided to minister to first responders. And last October, they distributed New Testaments to 13,000 police and fire personnel and prayed for them. Some of the personnel were believers and others were not, but no one refused the testament. Here in Henderson County, we were also restricted in what we could do. We visited fire stations. We could not enter nursing homes and care facilities and distribute Bibles directly to the residents, but we have provided Bibles for staff to give out, and they have been much appreciated. When the Apple Festival reopened this year, we again had a booth uh, in front of Main Street Baptist Church, and there we handed out 1,200 New Testaments and talked with many people uh, who took the time to stop by. I enjoy those conversations. They're all different. Um, some people simply express appreciation for uh, what we're doing. Some um, will accept the New Testament. Some tell us, uh, oh, I already have a Bible at home. And some decline. And, and um, in many cases, people take the time to tell us what um, the New Testament from the Gideons had meant in their lives. And often those conversations are with retired um, military men. Um, and several men I spoke with this year uh, expressed gratitude for testimonies, testimonies they received when, when they entered uh, the military. Distributions of military bases have always been a focus of the Gideon's ministry. And this next testimony is from a former soldier whose name is Joe Du Bois. In 11th grade, I started running from an addiction to drugs and alcohol. When the law, family, and even those dealing drugs were tired of me, I knew it was time to go. I sold my car, I hitchhiked out of state, and paid tuition to go to a new school for a fresh start. When I got to that new school, I did okay, but in time, I started falling into some of the same old habits that I had and some of the same wrong friends. After graduation, when things started closing in on me for the second time, I went to talk to an army recruiter on a Tuesday morning. It didn't take him long for him to talk me into leaving town quickly. But what confused me is when I was going to enlist, they decided to sign me up as a military policeman. God has a sense of humor. <laughs> On Wednesday morning, I went to the military entrance processing station in Manchester, New Hampshire, and I started to go through my processing, and I went through a line. And there in that line was a doctor handing out small, little testaments. 
And he gave me one. I took it and put it in my bag and didn't think much else about it. That afternoon, I went out on a plane, and on Thursday morning, I woke up to the sound of a kicking trash can at Fort, McCle Fort McClellan, Alabama, where I was going to basic training in AIT. For five months, I had peace from drug and alcohol. When I graduated from Fort McClellan, they shipped me to Fort Meade, Maryland. In Fort Meade, Maryland, when I started doing police work, I remember one time when I first stopped a young man and he had a bag of drugs in his hand. As I looked at that bag of drugs, he ran away. And instead of chasing him, I discovered a new way to get drugs that didn't cost me anything. I found other people in my room and in my barracks that did things the same way. And soon, the old habits started happening again. There was a bright spot in that I met a woman who was a photographer in the engineer battalion. And I got along good with her, and we went on three or four dates. And when I told my roommates, Bill and Bruce, they said, you have to stop seeing her. And I said, why? I like her. They said, oh, no, she's one of those people that read the Bible. She's a born-again Christian. I said, no, she's not. I've been going on with her, and she hasn't said a thing. You better ask her. So I went up to the engineer battalion, and I said, hey, are you one of those born-again Christians that reads the Bible? She said, yes, I am. And I said, why didn't you tell me that? She said, you never asked. And I said, yeah, but that's something you tell a guy. And she goes, who put this all in your head anyway? Because it's my friend. But well, I'm going to pray that you have better friends. <laughs> I said, whatever. And as I left that room, I never wanted to speak to her again for what she didn't tell me. When I got back to my room, Bill and Bruce were sitting there, and they both had papers in their hands. I said, what's going on? Bill said, I just got orders for Germany. Bruce said, I just got ordered for Korea. And I quickly dismissed what she said about me having new friends. <laughs> Bill and Bruce left about three weeks later. And the night before they left, we planned to go all over Fort Meade, Maryland, and plan pranks and things to do before they left. But we got high before that happened. And what turned out, what was supposed to be practical jokes, turned out to be misdemeanors and felonies. In the next, and we sprayed every single one of them with our squad number on it. The next day, Bill and Bruce left for Germany and Korea, and I was left holding the bag. The military police investigators started coming and asking me questions, and I lied, and I lied, and I lied. What happened next is I remember coming down the hallway and hearing rock and roll music coming from my room. I walked in and I saw my new roommate, Jim. And I said, I like your music. And he said, went over and he turned off the radio and he said, yeah, that's my one vice. I said, what do you mean your one vice? He goes, normally I like to read this. <laughs> I said, well, you stay on that side of the room and I go. <laughs> a few days later, a big Southern boy came in with the biggest smile I ever saw. He said, hey, how y'all doing? <laughs> and I said, are you a Christian? Are you one too? <laughs> no, Christians are on that side of the room. I'll be over here. Over the next few weeks, I started watching these two, 
and they had a genuine love relationship with God and with each other that I never saw before growing up as a Catholic. And I mean, I remember one time we were at breakfast and they were praying and one said, Dear Lord, thank you for this food, if you can call it food. And, and they laughed and they enjoyed their relationship that they had with God and I didn't understand that. But I had other things to worry about. I had the and military police investigators had finally figured out that it was me and they had me scheduled for a lie detector test on August 11th, 1981. So on the night of August 10th, I decided this was the third time and there was no escape. So I took all the drugs that I had hidden and I put them all in my mouth and I followed wow. it down with all the hard liquor that I had and I laid down to die. But God had other plans for me that night. And along with those two army privates, I remember the next morning when I woke up feeling worse than I'd ever felt in my life, I saw their smiling faces praying for me. I started to cry and said, what do I have to do to be like you? And then they took the, their own little Gideon Testaments that they had received and they started showing me the plan of salvation in the back. When it came to the point where they were asking me to say the prayer to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I said, wait a minute. I ran out into the hall and I grabbed Marty, one of my friends from the barracks. I said, Marty, come in. I'm going to change my life. I want you to see. So Marty came in and I started to say the prayer to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Halfway through the prayer, Marty bolted out of the room. But I didn't care. I finished the prayer. When I was done, Jim and Gary told me that there was a big party going on in heaven right now. And they said, Joe, you boys just accepted Christ. And all the angels are yelling and screaming. I go, get out of here. They said, no, look, there's more joy over one sinner than the window. And I got caught up in their enthusiasm. And all of a sudden, it popped into my mind. This girl will never believe what just happened to me. So I went out the door. And when I closed the door, there were eight of my friends from the barracks right outside. I said, hey guys, what's up? One of them said, you should know you're closer than we are. I said, what are you talking about? They said, we heard what you just did. I said, yeah? And they said, well, if you're going to be one of them, you're not going to be one of us. And as I walked towards them, they parted. And they said, not one of us. And I walked down the stairs, and as I walked down the stairs, I just realized I had lost all my friends. As I was walking up to her engineer battalion, the walk became a run, the run became a pace, the pace became a sprint. And when I hit the stairs where she was, I was going so fast my hands were touching the stairs. And I grabbed a piece of trash and I picked her and I grabbed her like this. And I went up there and when I got to her room, I opened the door. And when I opened that door, she had moved her room around so that her desk was right in front of the door. And her Bible was open and she was sitting down reading her Bible. I took the trash, I threw it in her face and I said, I just accepted your Christ, and all my friends turned against me. I don't know what kind of game this was, but it wasn't a game to me. And she started to cry, and she took the trash and went and threw it in the garbage. She said, what is this? I said, I don't know what's on the step. She goes, I think this is for you. She handed me the paper, and I started to read. Brother, consider it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is trying you, as though some strange thing is happening to you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you are partakers of his and then that is when I started to fall down crying. And when I got on the ground, I don't know how long I was down for. I don't know if it was 30 seconds or 30 minutes. But what I do know is when I got up, I was not the same as when I went down. 
I left. I left to go to the lie detector test. When I walked into the room, I said, I'm here to tell the truth. They said, oh, we've heard that before. You're getting hooked up. And they hooked me up right before they started asking me questions. The lieutenant colonel of the battalion came walking in and looked at me and said, you boys, what are you doing here? Why is he hooked up? I said, I'm here to tell the truth. They said, sir, he's the one who did all the damage on post. And then he said, you boys, you shut up and you unhook him. I said, but sir, they said, but sir. And then he said, am I the colonel? He said, Un unhook him and you shut up. And then he took a piece of paper and he transferred me from being an MP of the 209th MP company to being his personal assistant. What God does in the spiritual, God also does in the physical. I only got 40 seconds. Let me, let me close. <laughs> when I finally got pinned as a Gideon in Manchester, New Hampshire, the doctor who gave me my scripture was there, and he pinned me for the first time. And he, with tears in his eyes, he said, I gave up Bibles all those years, and I never knew anything that came of it. The eight men who were soldiers were standing outside my door over the next two months with miraculous stories. Three came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Gary and Jim, my roommates, Gary got out of the Army, was ordained as a pastor, and served in Surprise, Arizona, and is now in Missouri. Jim also recently ordained. He runs security for Ralph James Stadium in Tampa Bay, home of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And the girl I married. <laughs> Today, three billion people in the world have uh, little or no opportunity to hear the good news. It's a world that desperately needs the word of God. So how can you help? Above all, please continue to pray for the Gideons International. Pray that God will open doors for scripture distributions, more funds to purchase scriptures, more Gideons to distribute them, and protection for Gideons in countries where Christians are under attack. If God leads your church to do so, please continue to support the Gideons. When you give to the Gideons International, you are planting seeds. Although we cannot number the fruit that those seeds will produce, those seeds will impact lives for Christ. The testimonies you heard today were made possible by gifts from people just like you. Every dollar your church gives is used to produce, to purchase, and to ship scriptures. You can personally donate Bibles at any time using Gideon cards uh, to recognize an important event, let someone know you're thinking of them, or uh, place Bibles in memory of a loved one. And by using these cards, you make a significant difference uh, in our ability to, to place Bibles. Thank you, Pastor Jones, uh, for granting me this time to talk about the ministry of the Gideons. And thank you, Blue Ridge Bible Church, for helping us to sow the seeds of God's word. May God bless you richly.